Hello, welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Horizon Church in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We want to help people connect with God and connect with each other. If you'd like to know more about us, you can go to our website at horizonconnect.org. Enjoy. Alrighty, grab, uh, if you're here or if you're watching online, grab your Bibles and uh, there's some things you might, you might want to see and take notes on, on your Bibles. We're not going to go any further than the, really the first page of the Bible, so it'll be very easy for you to find it and follow along with what we're talking about. Um, I, want to, uh, I want to invite you, we're about to engage with God's Word, so I want to invite you to, to pray with me too and recognize God's Spirit. So God, we are, a, we are in pursuit of truth. And so, God, I pray that if there is anything that pulls us away, whether I have learned something wrong and I'm teaching it inappropriately, if, uh, God, if maybe there are other distractions, I pray, God, that you, through your Spirit, that you would guard our hearts and our minds and our bodies and that you'd keep us from being influenced the wrong way. God, I also pray that you would take truth and you'd change us. Help us to know that truth is not just a thing that occurs in our minds, but that it occurs throughout every area of our lives. And I pray, God, that we would live out truth and that we would do so in love. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, a word to the wise. I want to give you a quick lesson on what not to do. If you are ever teaching or preparing a lesson on the subject of sex and you are looking for... Um, an image or two that you want to use, say, for example, as a background on your PowerPoint, PowerPoint slides, do not, do not just type the word sex in your search bar and click on images, um, especially if you're using a work computer. Um, the, the, um, the only good that resulted when, when, I, when I did that um, <laughs> was that I got, a, uh, I got a look at what our digital world thinks about sex. And there is just something that is so much better than what our world thinks. Something that's so much healthier. Something that is just so much more fulfilling and something that brings us just so much more joy. I think our world... Um, Well, I think God has a better way. God is, after all, the one who thought up our shapes and our nerve endings and our overall design and the mystery. It is all a gift from him. So as Andy said, we are beginning a three-week sex talk And I want to work during these three weeks on discovering what God had in mind and what he has in mind still. Now, as Andy said, and as you've been hearing, I want to invite you to ask uh, questions, to submit any question at all that you want on this subject, and you can submit them in any way you're comfortable. You can email me or you can slide an anonymous note through the mail slot in the church at 2 a.m. when nobody's around to see. Any way you want, you can get me questions. And I want to thank those of you who have submitted some. But to begin, uh, maybe you are like me. Maybe you believe that God is our creator. Maybe you believe that 
This world and everything in it is his idea, corrupted though it all might be. Maybe you believe that God has good plans for us. Maybe you believe that God wants the best for you and that God wants the best for me and that God wants the best for every single person that you love. So maybe, like me, you believe that it would benefit us if we take the time to figure out what God had in mind with sexuality and then maybe you believe it would be good for us to be faithful to him. So we're going to start at the very beginning Genesis chapter 1, this incredibly magnificent poem on creation. This is what God did on day number 6. I'm reading from Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 27 and reading just a verse and a half to 28a. In the middle of day 6, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Actually, I just realized I read stuff earlier than what you're looking at, so forgive me. Verse 27, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Now, at the risk of insulting your intelligence by stating the obvious, I hope you noticed that in the beginning, uh, being made in the image of God, we are made to be sexual beings. Male and female, he created them. And that we are made male and female is on purpose and one, purposes, one of the purposes for our genders is so that we can engage in sex and fill the earth. Uh, it, it's not by accident that immediately after that sentence describing how God made us male and female, in the very next sentence, the biblical author wrote, and then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So at least one of the things that God had in mind with this gift of sex is this. Life. Now some of you know, um, having been around church or maybe knowing your church history, some of you know that the, the church has historically struggled with the passionate side of sex and has emphasized only this one, the procreation side of sex. Um, in other words, the church at times in history has said, honestly, they've said that the only legitimate reason for sex is to make babies or to at least try to make babies. And that teaching coming from the church historically has led to all kinds of confusion and frankly, all kinds of silly ideas in the church. So for example, there's an old, old church father, a man named Augustine, who lived from 354 to 430 AD. That's only 300 years after Jesus. Augustine was brilliant, and the way he taught and thought and what he taught and thought has shaped our world today. But Adam and he, or, but um, Augustine believed, however, um, that he did not much like sex. 
or maybe the way to say it is he liked it too much. And so he came to think it was a bad thing, at least after he became a Christian at the age of 31. So Augustine believed and he taught that if Adam and Eve engaged in sex before the fall, then they did it with no emotion, no passion. They did it, he said, much like brushing your teeth or picking up a fallen stick from the trail in front of you. You just do it dispassionately. Augustine taught, and and because Augustine was such a significant figure in the history of the church, his ideas, what he taught, were incredibly influential in the church. He taught that when it comes to sex, it's the passion that is sinful. So he taught that because sex produced passions that are somewhat uncontrollable, sex for any purpose other than making babies is sinful. Now, if you know anything at all about Augustine, you know at least one reason why he believed this. Before his conversion, Augustine lived a very pagan, very immoral lifestyle, a lifestyle that was actually normal for wealthy men like him in his day. Augustine left behind several mistresses and several concubines and several children. And at one point, Augustine was actually set to marry a 12-year-old girl. Augustine confessed of himself that he was a slave to lust, which he never conquered and which he saw as a problem for most of his life. So it's no wonder that Augustine looked at the passion of sex and wanted to erase it from our being and to say it's the passion that's sinful. Now, I know people very well who can identify with him. I felt the same struggles and pain And there are times that I've said to God that I would willingly surrender all of my feelings entirely if it would just make the pain go away. But Augustine, for all of his brilliance, is wrong on this one. One purpose for sex is life, but it is not the only purpose. In just a few paragraphs after what I read in Genesis chapter 1, just a few paragraphs later in Genesis chapter 2, God is going to put a man and a woman in a garden. And this garden is an astonishingly beautiful place. And once in this garden, God will say to Adam and Eve, eat freely from every tree in the garden. Now, obviously... Eating was not the only reason he put them in the garden. The garden was a place of endless delight, but at least one purpose for the garden was to eat. It contained the gift of food. But to say that the only reason for the garden was eating would be an incredible insult to the gift giver, would it not? So it is a reason, 
but it is not the only reason for sex. But it is a reason, and it's a magnificent reason that something gets born. Some time ago, I was at a wedding, and as sometimes happens at weddings, the DJ invited the bride and groom to dance. And then once they started dancing, the DJ asked every other married couple to join them on the dance floor. Now, I am a reluctant dancer. In the same way that some of you hate the idea of speaking in front of a crowd, I'm uncomfortable dancing. So maybe you can understand that I'm a reluctant dancer, if you understand that some of you are reluctant speakers. It's a sad thing for my wife. Nevertheless, it was a slow dance, which requires very little movement. So I grabbed Donna's hand and we went to the dance floor. After a half minute or so, the DJ said, everybody who is married less than six months have a seat. Of course, the bride and groom sat down along with one or two others. 30 seconds later, the DJ said, everybody sit who has been married less than a year. And then five years, and then 10 years, etc. Now, there was a time, and it doesn't seem like it was all that long ago, when Donna and I would have been the newlyweds and we would have sat down earlier, but that's not the case anymore. We kept dancing. He got the 35 years and we stayed. We knew that at the next cutoff, 40, we would sit down. And we did. And there were very, very few couples left. The DJ kept removing couples until there was just one couple left dancing. Turns out that they were married just over 65 years. They were the grandparents of the groom. And as I sat there and looked around that room at that happy event, at that room full of happy people, I realized that we were all there because 65 years ago, a once young man and a once young woman walked down an aisle. And soon after that service was over, they had sex. And something got born. And there in that room were children and grandchildren and even a few great-grandchildren, infants and toddlers who were being bounced on their knees. And it all began with this precious couple. What a gift is sex. Something gets born. Just about 10 weeks after you engage in sex and a single sperm has fertilized an egg, this is the life that is. He or she fits easily in the palm of a small hand. 
miraculous, isn't it? Miraculous. And that baby will grow and grow and grow. And then one day you will meet her and you will fall in love. What an extraordinary gift. What an extraordinary gift God has given. That somehow, miraculously, you and I get to participate with our Father in the creation of life. A couple has sex and something gets born. Now, there's obviously more to sex and more to the story. In the very next chapter, in Genesis chapter 2, there's kind of a rewind of the story of creation. In the second time around, rather than telling us about the creation of the world as a whole, God decides to zero in on just those two creatures made uniquely in his image. These creatures made to be like him. Creatures made to be known by him and to know him. And in Genesis chapter 2, God intends to show us some very important ideas about ourselves. It starts in verse 18 of chapter 2, where God one more time is reviewing creation. And although the word God has used so far when he reviews creation, the word so far has been good or very good. For the very first time reviewing creation, God says, this is not good. And what is not good is man's aloneness. It is not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. And what follows is kind of a creation parade. God makes and then he parades before Adam all kinds of creatures for Adam to see and to name. But among all these creations, Adam could find no helper who was just right for him. Now, it's interesting. Sometimes we read that and it seems to be kind of a failed attempt on God's part. Maybe God is just too new at this creation business. Well, no. What God wants is for Adam to discover for himself what God already knew to be true, that aloneness is not good. God wants Adam to know for himself, I need a partner who is just right for me. And soon Adam discovers that by experience. So God makes from Adam's side a woman. Now I'm trying very hard in this series to avoid rabbit trails. My goal is not to talk about marriage except as it relates to sexuality. I'm trying not to get sidetracked by gender issues or by all the little wonderful details of creation. But this one is important, I think, 
So let me go down kind of a semi-rabbit trail. In many of our Bibles, probably the Bible you're looking at, if you look at what the Bible says here, it will say that God took from Adam a rib. Usually that's the word used, a single rib. But the word, the Hebrew word, actually refers to more than just a single bone. It refers to Adam's side. The word means not just bone, but all of the flesh and all of the muscle and everything that's attached to it, which is why you will actually hear Adam very soon say, she is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. The word really is side, and that is on purpose She is to be by his side, his counterpart. She's not in front of him or behind him. She's not above him or below him. She is side by side with him. She is made to be his partner and he hers. And then having made this woman, God, our Father, walks her down the aisle, gives her to Adam, and the two meet at last. At last, Adam exclaims. And there is the wonder and the thrill and the emotion. At last. This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, I want you to see something very important here. It's in that very last phrase, they shall become one flesh. There are some Bible translators, the one I typically read from, and maybe the one you're reading from, some Bible translators who've made a significant grammar mistake in that phrase. My Bible, for example, reads, they were united into one. As if it happened all at once, and is now a done deal, this oneness. That's not how the ancient Hebrew reads. It reads, shall become. Oneness does not happen when a minister pronounces you man and wife. Oneness does not happen the moment you have sex. Oneness is a lifelong process of becoming. And there are all kinds of tools and all kinds of gifts and all kinds of emotions and all kinds of skills and all kinds of practices that we use to become one. One of the gifts is the gift of sexuality. This woman 
who was meant to become man's partner, to be fully by his side and he by hers. In every task that they are given by God, in exercising dominion over creation, they were partners. They were one. In caring for the garden, they were partners. They were one. But this oneness does not dissolve two human beings into one. You do not disappear and a single new creature now exists. You bond. Over a lifetime, you unite, and our sexuality is a physical gift that contributes to our bonding, to our uniting. There are all kinds of chemicals and hormones that are released during sex that make this bonding very real. It's not just words. It's real. It's physical. That's why in the very next chapter, or a chapter later, in chapter 4, the very first sentence of chapter 4, after, after that horrific episode in chapter 3 that throws everything in creation off kilter and now the whole world will walk with a limp, in chapter 4, we return to Adam and Eve, to their ongoing life and what will happen to them and what their future holds. And in chapter 4, verse 1, it says this. Now, Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. It is a wonderful phrase. Adam knew his wife. Now, you know that most of our Bibles will take that phrase and translate it accurately into a more modern expression. He had sex with his wife. That's what it means. But it is a wonderful Hebrew idea that in this sexual relationship, Adam was coming to know his wife. Becoming one was occurring. Oneness is not automatic. It can happen without sex, obviously. And sex is, of course, no guarantee that any kind of a good relationship is going to happen. Sex can be and often is harmful. But here is what God did have in mind. For a man and for a, uh, a female a man and a woman who are becoming one, sex is a gift. It's a knowing. It's a unique kind of knowing. Adam knew his wife. That's God's plan. It's part of the purpose for our sexuality. There's a great video that was made by a, a team of young researchers who are working to unravel the mystery of sexuality. And this video starts with the rather typical man on the street or you know, woman in the coffee shop kind of an interview. 
And to random people, these young researchers ask, is there a difference between sex and love? And of course, almost every person says, yeah. And then they ask, well, what's the difference between sex and love? And almost every person interviewed says some kind of version of, well, love is something you feel, sex is something you do, and they're not necessarily connected. You know, it's kind of a sadly fascinating thought that that's what people think. Love is what we feel. Sex is what we do. Sex is just an activity. It's what we do. Like bowling or croquet or having dinner or playing dominoes or shooting clay pigeons. It's a lot more sweaty and intense, of course, but it's just another activity. It may be that's how we use it, which certainly explains a lot of our brokenness. But it's actually kind of heartbreaking, not surprising that we have actually turned completely upside down what God designed to be good. God actually made it so that love is something we do. And sex is how we connect what we do with how we feel. We have turned God's design one more time upside down. We've broken what God made, kind of how we break everything. And the consequences are not especially grand. Madonna actually has an old song out about love and sexuality song called Don't Tell Me, in which she sings, Tell me love isn't true, it's just something that we do. Tell the rain not to drop. Tell the wind not to blow. Tell the leaves not to turn. Take the black off a crow. What's Madonna singing? can't be done. She's singing that sex is just what we do. It can't be done. Now, I would argue with her that, of course, it can be done. The evidence is all over our world, not just our current world, but pretty much since the Garden of Eden had its entry gates blocked. Of course, sex can be just an activity. 
coursing can be connected from God's given purpose. It happens all the time. Can one human being sell another human being into slavery so that one profits? Of course we can. We do. Can one human being take the life of another so that one can pocket a couple hundred bucks? Of course we can. We do. Can one human being sell a counterfeit drug that is supposed to be one thing but is really artificial and dangerous? Of course we can. We do. But how sad for us that we have broken trust, that we have cheapened life, that we've traded God's given goodness for our selfish pleasures. How sad. And it's no wonder that counselors and therapists will always have business. But there still remains. There will always remain God's purpose. The kingdom of God will never go away. And it will prevail. There is still the promise of God's good gift. And maybe today a young man and a young woman will stand before a minister with their family surrounding them and they will make a promise. And maybe today a minister will put his hands on theirs and pronounce them married. Now one. And they will go home and in a bedroom or the living room couch if they can't make it that far with hearts pounding. They will begin the process of becoming one. And maybe unknown to them, something gets born. God's purposes are never derailed. One time long ago, Jesus sat down at a well during the hottest part of the day. He was tired, thirsty, and alone. A lone woman carrying a clay water jug on her shoulder came walking up a dirt path, raising little clouds of dust with every step. She saw him, of course, and so she carefully and silently walked to the far side of the well. And then he said, Will you give me a drink? Pretty ordinary request, we might think but not on this day and not in this place and not to this woman. You, a Jewish man, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? <laughs> well, if 
you only knew who was asking, you would ask him, and he would give you life-giving water. Stunned silence. Would you please give me this water, she asked. Go get your husband. And her face drops and painful silence settles. I have no husband. I know. I know. I know you've been married five times and the man you're with now isn't your husband. He knows her painful past. He knows her horrendous disappointment. And soon this woman's heart would beat with hope and the possibility of redemption, and she will mistakenly leave her water jug at the well, run to her village, and grab the cloaks of everyone she's passing by, the cloaks of people who had turned their face away from hers for years, and she will say, come. You have to come and meet this man who knows all about me. Could he be the one? Will Christianity fill all of your dreams? Will our faith give you everything you want? Will Jesus fulfill every one of your wishes and desires? Some of them may be. Our Father loves to give good gifts. But in this life, not every dream will be met. But there is always this. There is always Jesus. And he will never go away. He knows all about you. All the broken pieces, all the shattered hopes. And this king will put you back together again. There is always Jesus. So let me finish by praying for all of us. God, we thank you for an extraordinary gift that you've given. But even in the thanking, Father, we recognize that there are trails behind this gift, so much pain. So many dreams unfulfilled. So many hopes and longings that have never been met. So many mistakes, so many heartbreaks. So much harm done to human beings because of this gift. So God, as is always the case, 
I pray that through your spirit, you would be directing us along the right paths. That you, Father, would be helping us to take this gift and enjoy it and use it in the way you fully intended us to use it. I pray too, God, for all of us who at times have prayed in the midst of heartbreak and asked you to take pain away. I pray for all of us who still have longings and hopes and dreams. I pray, God, that through your presence, the very real power of Jesus, you would be taking all of our broken pieces and that you would be putting us back together again. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about Horizon Church, please go to the website at horizonconnect.org. Have a great week.